Hi, it's Chad Griffiths. I'm the host of the Industrial Real Estate Show, and I'm glad you're here. After you listen to it, please consider leaving a review on our Apple or Spotify page and check out any more episodes to see how you can learn more about the industrial real estate market. Well, good afternoon, everybody. My name is Chad, and I'm very excited for another episode of the Industrial Real Estate Show. This will be an interesting one because if you've followed any of my other interviews, I've interviewed a lot of lawyers, and I'm a big advocate of lawyers myself. I always recommend lawyers as part of due diligence for people buying or leasing. And of course, I've used a lawyer every time I've bought or, or sold a property. So I'm a big advocate of lawyers, but there is that perhaps you could call it a misnomer that lawyers kill deals and that's what we're going to tee this conversation off uh, daniel waldman's a lawyer based out of toronto and we're going to start this conversation by answering that question and discussing it but then we're going to move into talking about a lawyer's role in buying and selling uh, commercial and industrial real estate as well as leasing and some other things that people need to be aware of. Maybe we'll pull the curtain back on what a lawyer will actually do in a transaction that the average person might not see. So we're going to have a fun discussion on this. Uh, chat is open. So if you have any questions for Daniel as we're going through this, please put them in the chat and we'll get to as many as we can. With that, Daniel, I'll have you come on and good to see you. Thanks so much for joining me on the show. Good to see you too, Chad. Thanks for having me. And feel free to call me Dan. Dan, Dan it is. And I put a funny picture on uh, on LinkedIn and Twitter in advance of this one. Uh, funny enough, it was I, I use an AI system. And you and I have talked about AI in the past as well. I used MidJourney to create that. And the only prompt I gave it, I think I said a pretentious lawyer talking on the phone with a grin and it's you know, this really good image of the of an old school lawyer in a dark library talking on the phone and it took about 30 seconds so it's uh, hopefully we can have a little longer conversation than what uh, ai spit out for me on that but let's let's tee it up there because you probably hear this a lot and and this, this is a question that i think lawyers need to justify so i i'm an advocate of lawyers but hearing it from you i think will be more powerful do lawyers mm -hmm. kill deals okay well first of all i'm very happy to hear that you are an advocate of lawyers everyone loves lawyers so we're happy to have people like you in our corner uh so do lawyers kill deals so i mean not so much a, a yes or no question uh the short answer is sometimes i would say and the reason that lawyers you could say would, would kill deals is because lawyers or good ones at least like to think about the long-term implications of what people are doing so you know we're talking about the world of real estate here the amount of times someone like me because i'm a litigator is called in to um address a discrepancy a landlord and tenant dispute on the commercial level a transaction gone sideways a development deal gone sideways I'd say most of the time, the vast majority of the time, the, real, the reason someone is, uh, like me is called in to resolve a dispute is because of the way the deal was papered in the first place. Whether they used a lawyer or didn't use a lawyer, they didn't use a good enough lawyer or they didn't use a lawyer well enough or they didn't use one at all because there's gaps in the agreement that don't make sense. There's things that don't hold up. There's dispute mechan uh, resolution mechanisms missing and everything so in in those cases people like me are, are brought in to clean up the mess and but 
when the deal starts, yeah, oftentimes lawyers will kind of kill it by wanting to introduce things to protect their clients that the other side will not agree with. And then one side will want to die on the hill, often at the lawyer's advice, and you know, the deal can go sideways as a result. But, you know, that being said, it may be for the best if the deal dies because of this, other than something going wrong down the line. That's a good way of describing it. And that that's how I would look at it as well, is that if a deal is killed, it's probably because it should have died anyways. So on on the topic of, of deals, could you give any examples off the top of your head on what one of those clauses, a hill to die on, might be and why it can't be worked around? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, sure. So one of them, I mean, I, I wrote an article recently for Renix uh, about a decision. It's making a lot of waves uh, and it has to do with a landlord and tenant entering into a commercial deal for leasing an upscale coffee shop in a mixed use development. And the lease went through and it went through fine and everything, but then the tenant couldn't function because the landlord wasn't providing it with significant parking or sufficient rather sufficient parking on its premises. And it was a destination upscale coffee joint out of Europe. And they said, without parking, we can't operate our business. And they're saying, you landlord, you promised us this parking. You didn't give it to us. And the landlord said, yeah, we may have done that, but hang on. The lease had this term that said, um, this is the entire agreement between us. So, if it didn't say enough about parking, that's on you, tenant. Court didn't buy it, found in favor of the tenant. So a deal like that is often the case. In real estate transactions, most sides contracts should have an entire agreement clause that says this contains the entire agreement between the parties. Sometimes a deal will die on that hill because basically what a clause like that does, it didn't work in this case, is often puts a stop to everything, saying, this is the entire agreement between the parties. Anything you agreed on beforehand is off the table. Exists, doesn't exist, right? So sometimes those are important to put in often, but it makes parties apprehensive because they may think, okay, well, what if we didn't think to include one thing and it becomes an issue later? So comprehensive clauses like that sometimes get in the way, but one side may insist on it. The other side may say, well, no, no, we want some kind of safety net in case something goes sideways. But, you know, any good lawyer will insist on papering it as thoroughly as they can. So what was the issue? Why did the judge side with the tenant uh, in that situation? Well, in that situation, what they said is, yeah, this is the entire agreement between the parties. But the lease didn't really say much about parking. It didn't say that, like, parking was an issue in the lease. And the entire agreement clause says it covers all aspects covered by this lease and those are uh, are what's captured by this clause. And all the evidence showed and the landlord pretty much outright admitted saying, yeah, we did promise them parking, but we, we didn't provide it, but that's not our problem now. So judge wasn't really impressed. Understandably. So in theory, if that lease had stipulated saying the tenant is assigned five stalls using an arbitrary number, the tenants assigned five stalls for their exclusive use and then it had the entire agreement clause in there. Would that have satisfied that? That would have likely satisfied them, even if there was an agreement beforehand uh, about parking, if the lease specifically said, this is the parking you're given and this is it. 
right? This is all we could promise in terms of your parking. Then the court may have said, okay, well, you're getting kind of a bum deal here, but you should have read what you signed Mm -hmm. a little closer. So as a litigator, how many of the cases that you have are involve issues where it was silent on the topic as opposed to the actual inference of, of a particular clause? Well, not too many, not too many, because uh, a lot of the time leases and other agreements like this do contain, like to go to run with this example more, an entire agreement clause. And nine out of 10 times, a court will say, well, no, I mean, the, the purpose of an entire agreement clause, for instance, is to remove what the Supreme Court called the muck of the negotiations. Mm-hmm. So, you know, two sides say a lease or even like a development deal for like an industrial property, the stuff that you specialize in, right? Parties will go back and forth and say, okay, we'll, we'll agree that you'll provide this. You'll agree that the closing date is this and, you know, all, all these different aspects. And then they sign a comprehensive contract. That contract is meant to take all the negotiations and keep them in the same place. That way, parties can't come out of the woodwork later and said, well, you promised me this. Like, there's a lot of cases where tenants and shopping malls businesses fail and then they say yeah but hang on when the landlord was developing the shopping mall they told me they were going to open this store and this store and it would drive this kind of traffic and keep our business going and the landlord's promises you know never came to pass in those cases the landlord often says well no i I never made that promise to them i said we were going to look into stuff like that but we didn't guarantee that we didn't guarantee foot traffic and in cases like that, it be you know it comes down to he said she said, and in that case, the court goes back to this entire agreement clause and says no no, this is what the clause said, this is what you gentlemen agreed to, too bad for you. In your experience, do the courts typically put a little bit more leeway on the tenants uh, versus the landlords, assuming that they look at landlords as being more sophisticated and a small mom and pop company? Is it similar to like the residential side that way? Yes. Yeah. It's not nearly as bad as the residential side. Like, you know, in, in Ontario, evicting a residential tenant is a quest that could often take years, even if they're not paying rent for many, many months at a time. On the commercial side, yeah. I mean, commercial landlords are often, it's often seen as what they call like the imbalance of bargaining power. Like the commercial landlords, like the Morgards, the Cadillac Fairviews of the world are like seen as big corporations who are holding the cards. And the tenants who are often like brick and mortar businesses are seen as people just kind of trying to make their living, right? Mm -hmm. So there is kind of a natural inclination to lean towards them because they have it worse. That being said, though, courts do like consistently follow the letter of the law and, and what the leases say. And, you know, the past... Um, few years, other there's a decision that just came out recently that's worth noting, but the past few years have been very indicative of that because COVID hit, shutdowns happened, right? Tenants could not literally set foot in the space that they were paying to use, right? You know, because of the shutdown, landlords, you know, signed leases saying we will provide you with this space to operate their business. They could not literally do that. They couldn't physically do that. So tenants were saying, okay, well, we shouldn't have to pay rent. Why should we have to pay rent for a space we can't physically use? So they flocked to courts left and right, but, you know, they were shot down pretty much every time where the land, the, the court was saying, okay, well, you agreed to pay rent for use of this space. And if it's, 
it's something outside of your control. It's something outside of your control, but it's not the landlord's fault that you can't use your premises. So you still have to pay rent. And, you know, that resulted in waves and waves of businesses losing their money. And where the courts did show some deference and sympathy, tenants couldn't catch a break. Hmm. On the lease itself, uh, this is something I want to explore because I've I've had this uh, in very various forms over the years, but quite often, especially when you're talking about these large institutional landlords, and I have a client that's a large institutional landlord, and they have a standard form, their standard lease that they use across the board. So they've got several hundred tenants that all use this exact same form, and occasionally we'll have a tenant that wants to lease it, and their lawyer will will come and try to rewrite this standard lease, and some of this more sophisticated, the larger tenants, I think have a better grasp of it. But we, one in particular, we had a, a tenant come in. It was a very small space on it. Even like, I think it was only a three-year lease. So a small space, short-term lease. And they had a lawyer from a small town that was one of those jack-of-all-trades that did family law and real estate law and did it everything. And they came back and I think it was 12 pages. They had 12 pages of changes that they wanted to make on this on the standard lease agreement, which is used all across the country. In that case, that I don't think that the lawyer was doing the best service for his client. And it was very painful actually getting through that. And at one point we thought it was going to die. Where, mm-hmm. where is the optimal line as a lawyer for, for you recommend representing your client and speaking, I, I suppose, uh, for the whole industry, which I admit would be very difficult to do, but where is that optimal line between com- representing your client's best interests and recognizing that sometimes you just you can't negotiate everything? How, how do you mm-hmm. balance that? Well, okay, that's a very good question, and oftentimes, like I'm not the one that negotiates the leases, but I will come in to consult on leases if I think it leaves them exposed to liability. So, like, there's no bright line for every document, every transaction; that they're all separate. But oftentimes, you're right that lawyers do kind of try to overdo it, where they'll look at things, they'll rewrite things, they'll insist on certain things, and you have to think about, okay. A, the deal itself, okay? You, you don't want to disrupt the deal unless the other side is insisting on something that really leaves your client open to serious liability or leaves them in a place where they will not be able to operate their business under that lease. In that case, you should insist on things because you're not serving your client properly. Some lawyers, though, you know, like, like any other profession, like to arbitrarily do things to that aren't necessarily necessary that won't exactly help the other side as well either some lawyers just say well when i do a lease i'm used to putting all these clauses in you have to think about the practical application of the clause and what happens right i I never recommend just signing a standard form lease and saying this is the lease we always use we've never had a problem well you know a there's a first time for everything and b every tenant has specific needs. So, you know, it's up to the lawyer to talk thoroughly about the tenant and and what they want to do, right? I had a case recently where my client operated this very specialized manufacturing business that used automotion in a warehouse to produce some very unique products that very few companies produced. And 
they were entering into a lease agreement with a landlord that offered warehouse space. And, you know, it was, it was a big industrial space. And the landlord said, we well, know you're signing the same lease that you're signing for all of our other clients, all our other tenants in this space. And they came to me and said, well, hang on a second. Do we have liability here? Is, is there exposure? And there was because the work they do required them to get some very specific permits and required them to install some very specific equipment and they needed power generation and everything else. Under the lease, the landlord wanted them to sign the landlord had no obligation to cooperate them, cooperate with them to get them what they need. It just said it'd be used as an industrial space. The use clause in the lease was very broad, very vague. So that means that tenant could have occupied the space and said, okay, we need your help landlord to sign these uh, permits with the city. We need you to sign off on us alterations to install this. The landlord could have easily said no. You know, no, we're not obligated to do that. The lease says just an industrial space. You could use it for an industrial space. You know, you don't have to use it for this purpose. And in that case, they may have been right. And then the landlord would have been stuck with a 10-year lease for space at a huge amount of rent that they could not use to operate their business. Right. So if that's the case, then it is important to do that. If it is the case, well, they are just like a warehousing tenant to uh, to store things where where so Amazon trucks could come pick them up or whatever, then yeah, you don't necessarily need to mess with the lease the same way and try to get in the way of, of a standard deal that's going to happen. But if the tenant does have specific needs, then you do need to address them. I think that is a perfect example of not just the value of a lawyer, but also a situation where a lawyer should kill a deal that should be killed and if, yes. if the landlord did say no that's a considerable amount of risk that the tenant would have to take on and i think that would be untenable for most companies out there so i think that's, that's a great example that it, in that case it worked out in your favor ten the landlord relaxed on that term and agreed to do it but if it didn't that no a- no they didn't well, we did didn't. kill the deal. We did. We oh, the deal did die in that case. But you know that there it had to. Otherwise, like there was no deal, right? And we asked the landlord, like, "Are you going to cooperate?" And they were giving us vague answers. So the deal did die. And I had cases where tenants would come to me after they signed a lease like that. Like one of them wanted to operate a a college, and. Uh, they had very, uh, it was a very specific type of technical college where also they needed to get certain permission to do very specific things. And then the landlord refused. And they said, we want to sue to get the landlord to comply, to use our space, or we want out of this lease. Problem is the lease just said, we're operating a college in the space. Hmm. And then in the end, the court said, well, no, you could still operate a college. You don't have to operate what you said you were. You should have you made that clear in your lease. You didn't. So if they had made that clear, maybe the deal would die. But in that case, it would have been for the best. Yeah, I agree. It's I, I can completely see why. Just a, a thought as you were mentioning that came. So what happens if the tenant would have said, okay, we, we accept that you're not going to necessarily cooperate. What happens if we just made a conditional period for two months so that we can go and apply for all these permits? Uh, and then if we can't get them, then the deal dies. Was there any discussion on that or did the conversation just break down? 
the conversation breaks down when that happens because usually in cases like that you're going kind of through this experimental phase but you know you have to spend time and money to set it up the landlord mm -hmm. has to provide a space for someone that may not be there long term so the landlord is not going to say like i'm not you know i'm not going to give you a trial run because it's not in my best interest like unless it, unless like you end up being my dream tenant but if that's the case they would have cooperated anyway right so if you switched hats and you were mm -hmm. representing the landlord what would you advise the landlord to do well what i advise the landlord to do is i would tell them like okay well listen do you have a problem with what they're doing do you have any issues with that i mean if you think they're going to be a good tenant and pay a lot of rent um then I would advise them to cooperate. If, however, you think that their business has the potential to like disrupt other tenants in, in the warehouse doing that, or if you think it's gonna put you out too much to cooperate with the city for these permits or what have you, or the third option is what if like you do cooperate and they still can't get these permits to work? Right? They still can't get the space to function, then you're both in a bad position because then the tenant is going to want out. The landlord is not. They're going to say, we cooperated. You have to stay. So if it's that kind of con thing that's going to like cause friction and, and put risk, I would tell the landlord, like, be aware of the risks before, before you're doing this. If you think it's going to be too much hassle, then maybe it's more trouble than it's worth. Find like a regular warehousing tenant. How does the conversation go between lawyers when you get to that stalemate and there is no decisive outcome other than the deal's dead what is how does that conversation go is it just collegial and, and what well, we tried let's let's go have a drink at the bar later or or is there friction and frustration on on the lawyer side between the lawyers yeah I'm just curious well how that works it, like as a litigator it's it's often often the case where lawyers get extremely prickly and mad and hostile and kind of really go at each other and i'm always of the mind and it's easier said than done so i don't judge people who who do it the other way is that your client's problems are not your own your job as a lawyer is to do your best and try to get the best result from your client for your client so you need to take a step back and you always find like you get much better results if you have a collegial relationship with the other lawyer the bar is small lawyers cross paths all the time that being said you know sometimes you can't help it if the lawyer on the other side is being rude is being difficult is taking things personally is internalizing it you may see yourself as pushing back and sometimes your client wants that because sometimes you know when you, when you get these rude emails and you're having these meetings with your client and the other side's being aggressive you know, your clients sometimes think like, why aren't you pushing back a little bit? Like, why aren't you like being my muscle uh, a little bit in these cases? So, you know, I'm still of the mind and I always try to be nice, be respectful and, and, and try things that way. Other lawyers, you know, get a little more aggressive and they think that gets them a better result from their clients, but it, it differs person to person. Yeah, I'm guessing that is largely a case by case basis as well. It might be might be different depending on who you're talking to at any given day or what the issue is, uh, what the weather is like outside. If if the if the Maple Leafs uh, lost a hockey game, maybe that maybe everyone's a little bit more. Well, three. Uh, they've got they've got a tough one tonight, I believe. <laughs> uh, 
uh, on the topic of litigating, because this this is fascinating to me as well. I've I've never actually been in any litigation myself, uh, but I've I've had clients that have, and I've just been exposed to it uh, somewhat uh, secondhand. What were like some of the more common themes that you see on why a real estate transaction might go to litigation, why it isn't settled? Uh, before it has to get, go to that level, are there any common themes, or is that something else that just differs deal to deal? It, it like it, it differs deal to deal, but you know, li- litigation happens. It's the cost of doing business, and real estate like is no exception. Like any, you know, developer, investor, landlord, what have you, will know that they're likely going to have to deal with a couple lawsuits during their during their career. It it, it happens, and. The common themes are just often like things that are out, outside of people's control. Like you, you sign like for an industrial space, what you're dealing with, for instance, like something with a long closing date and you know, you hit a snag during the construction process or, or something like that and you can't deliver it in a timely fashion, right? And then the, the seller will be kind of leaning on the city saying, you have to give me these permits so I could deliver this property the way I promised in the state and the city, you know, being the city will often just kind of throw their hands up and say, we're working when we can, we'll get it when we can, you know, then the permits are not delivered. Things don't close. The buyer is saying, okay, well, I intended on starting business on this date. I had all these customers lined up for all my work. Now you can't do it. You can't deliver. I'm going to lose a ton of money. And I promised all this opening. So I've lost all this revenue. I'm suing you for this. The landlord will say, well, hang on. I didn't necessarily promise you all this stuff. And if I did, it's because the city didn't deliver. The city will say, well, we have no obligation to deliver anything on a certain amount of time. So those are the themes that often occur. I mean, there are cases where, you know, there's one that occurred recently that uh, I've got a column coming out about this next week is that, you know, these two parties agreed to lease a, a big industrial space for a growing trucking business. And then, you know, on the eve of closing, one side said, you know what? It was a technicality. You didn't deliver the docs to our lawyer within 48 hours, like you said you would, even though they didn't say who the lawyer was. So, you know, we're set to close, but four months ago, you didn't honor that part of the deal. So we're getting out of this, right? You know, that's just kind of bad faith, but that does happen. Like, you know, sometimes a party has a second thought about selling a property to another because the land value may have tripled and they'll want out of the deal. So they'll just say, you know, we're not closing. Then the other side will sue. So there are cases where you litigate because one side is being unreasonable. But I'd say most of the time in my experience, it's often when circumstances happen in ways that people didn't plan for. And then whose fault is it? Well, that's for a judge to decide. Do you find that you settle most cases before it goes to court? I'd say around 99% of lawsuits settle before they go to trial. Wow, 99%. 99%, but that doesn't mean that a lot happens beforehand. Like Lawsuits have like a lot of different phases that typically take years before they actually go to a trial. Some are applications, which are just like a, like a hearing without witnesses in a formal trial. Those go to court often. But the formal trials, 
settle long before the vast majority of the time. But like I said, you go through a discovery phase, you go through a mediation phase, you go through a documentary phase. So there's like years and years of going through everything. And then it will often settle on the eve of trial because at that point, you know all the evidence, you know, you typically get a sense of how things are going to go. So, you know, either both sides right away walk away, one side agrees to do something or, or write a check. But the ones that do go to trial are ones where either people are being stubborn or it's not clear. It's not clear like who, whose fault it is, what the contract says, what the evidence says and, and how it will work out. Right. Like the one we were talking about with the entire agreement clause and the coffee shop. Right. That could have gone either way. A judge could have read that one way or the other. A judge may have said, you know, no, no, this entire agreement clause says what it says or could have gone the way it did. So in the, that 1% that does go to, to it before a judge, is there, and, and you mentioned it's because there's not clarity on it, both probably parties probably feel that they've got an equal chance of winning, otherwise they would just settle. Is there likely to be an outcome either way or is it really just a toss of the coin is no what sorry i didn't understand is there is there any indication like have you noticed that it tends to go in one direction for in one party's favor or is it a toss of the coin on what the judge decides hello my name is wyatt hammond and i am the producer of the industrial real estate podcast i'm here to let you know that this episode is being sponsored by bastion pence Bastion is an American custom pen designer that manufactures their products out of top quality materials such as stainless steel, titanium, and aluminum. Bastion pens are a premium, reliable writing instrument that make the act of writing more enjoyable every day. Use the code in the description to order yours. Now back to your episode. It, it could be. Like sometimes you do have a, a very good sense of how it's going to go, but it, it and they won't settle like you know sometimes things don't settle because the sides are too far apart on on how much you're going to offer mm-hmm. or maybe one side's being stubborn and said no i won't i won't offer to do anything at all but sometimes you do get a good sense of how it's going to go that being said you the one thing i always tell clients and everyone else is if you when you, when you see a lawyer a litigator and they tell you oh yeah if this is go if this goes to court here's how it's going to be ruled if they tell you that do not hire that person <laughs> ever if they tell you that halfway through fire that lawyer because oftentimes you could get a good sense of how it's going to go but if you tell your client when this goes to trial here's how it's going to be decided that's a big mistake you never know how things are going to go you never know how the judge is going to read the evidence sometimes a judge may also just like be in a bad mood and not and not like you or or whatever that like doesn't often happen judges you know they're objective they're impartial but you can't ever say with certainty how things are going to how things are going to go that, that's a great answer and, and you're right i suspect that they're like any profession people always are going to there's going to be some segment of the profession that always thinks that they have an answer when i, I, I equate it to getting asked the question what's the property going to sell for i really have no idea but we we've got a pretty good indication and all the facts suggest that it should be in this area but i'm not the buyer all we can do is market the property and whatever a buyer is willing to pay is what they're willing to pay so i can't answer that price uh, that answer either i can't say what the property is going to sell for no more than a, a a, a litigator like yourself can say that we guarantee that what the outcome is so i think that's a great answer on that mm-hmm. there was yeah, a question I've... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no. 
Yeah, I absolutely agree. Yeah. Uh, there was a question why that came in before. Yeah, that's the one there. Uh, so on this topic of litigation too, and I'm, I'm just reading this, I'm guessing that this is going to be one of those questions where there could be a, a lot of different answers, but uh, is it worth spending the legal fees chasing a tenant in default? And not, not a whole lot more context on that, but from my own experience, sometimes you'll see small tenants that probably don't have any money They're If they're not yeah. paying their rent, they're probably not paying any other bills. So it's, you don't even know if there's any money to chase and then you're kind of throwing good money off after bad. And then sometimes yeah. you'll see a lease where it was personally guaranteed. So the corporate tenant might be in default, but there's a personal guarantee. And then sometimes you'll see a company that for whatever reason, just decided they're not paying their rent, uh, and, but you know that they have money. So maybe all three scenarios if you don't mind on is it worth spending the legal fees to chase a tenant that's not paying their rent anymore okay so yeah you, you made a couple very good points oftentimes um tenants will incorporate uh, a, a special purpose vehicle a company often just a numbered company that will be the tenant on the lease that company is a shell they have no money they have Hang on, your your pause there. I don't know if you're still here. Oh yeah, no, I'm still here. It's uh, is it good on your end? Oh, I can hear. I can hear. It's a bit of a lag. Hmm. Your face isn't moving. Oh, That's there you are. You're back. Oh, sorry. That's it was working on my end. Good old internet connectivity. Yeah, there you go. And go to everyone's favorite. So I think I left off. So tenants become special purpose vehicles to to sign a lease occupy a space. They have no money. They have no assets. A couple of months into the lease, they will default on their rent. Uh, the landlord will kick them out and say, now you're liable for rent until the end of the term. That's what, the, that's what it says in the case of a commercial lease. Okay. Is it worth chasing them? Like you said, it depends entirely on circumstances, right? They're out of the space. Then it's a good time to call your lawyer and say, okay, I rent a space to a warehousing tenant at, at this at this place or a numbered company. They've defaulted on their lease. Should we chase them? So the first thing your lawyer should do is take a look at what the company is. We could run corporate searches. We, we could do skip tracing. We could do different things to determine if the company has any assets. If they don't, then we often then you, you could say, okay, you, you could chase them. You may get a judgment against them, but turning that judgment into cash is going to be a challenge. You may not get anything. Sometimes commercial landlords who are big and established always do it anyway to show, you know, to, to make an example, to say that if a tenant defaults, we are going to chase you for that because then you don't want tenants doing things like defaulting and not worrying, right? <laughs> If the lease is personally guaranteed, well, you do the same thing. You look at the person behind the lease, see if they have any money or assets. Are there any money in their bank accounts? Do they own houses? Do they own vehicles? If so, then you could tell your client then, uh, yeah, you know, you could go after it and, and chase it down and try to turn it into cash because it deals a deal and they defaulted on it. So those are the cases where it would be worth doing. Again, any good lawyer will tell you though, if somebody comes to me and says, my, I've been, I rented a, a space to this client, this tenant, they had a 10 year lease after two years, they stopped paying rent. We've locked them out. 
should I be suing? Well, then those are the questions I would have first. Do you know if they have any money? Do you know if they have any assets? Are they a numbered company? Are they a shell? Are they a real tenant? And then if so, you know, you, you act accordingly. They may want to do it anyway, even though the company has no money or assets, but that's up to them. I, I've heard from some larger companies that, and not all of them, because you're right, I think that there are a lot of landlords that would spend the money just to send a message. But I've heard that some larger companies are are reluctant to sue, especially if there's a personal guarantee, uh, because they don't want the reputation of foreclosing on someone's house. So perhaps yeah. that, that person, that company leased a 5,000 square foot warehouse, a small space, uh, and it didn't work out. They had a personal guarantee. A big pension fund, as an example, goes and sues gets a successful judgment and they're going to foreclose on that person's house. The, the optics of that probably wouldn't look good, but that, yeah. that is uh, an op an option provided the lease is structured that way where a company that personally guaranteed it, they are at risk of having to honor that. So in that theory, it's possible that they could get a judgment and that s situation could unfold. Right. Yeah. It, it could, but you know they don't have necessarily have to do it that way. Like one thing they could do is register the judgment against title to the home. Okay, mm -hmm. and if that's the case, they don't have to force us. They could, if they wanted to, they could force a sale and get paid out, or they could just kind of put it on title and say, okay, this judgment's on title to your home now. Either you pay it off or find a way to to reach a deal with us that will satisfy us, or it's going to stay on title, meaning they will not be able to sell that home. Right, and if they do, they'll have to pay out the, the landlord or the the the, the judgment creditor before, creditor before it happens. Right? And interestingly, that's in my experience on those types of situations that it does it doesn't usually get that far, but it's usually a discussion about this is what will happen. Let's come up with a settlement on this. We don't want to put a lien on your house. We don't want to foreclose. Let's just yeah. come up with a fair compromise. And there usually is uh, a settlement, at least from from what I've experienced. But I, I think that all speaks to just the how important that lease is. Uh, and, yeah. and that's why I'm such an advocate of, of lawyers uh, being involved is you don't know. If you don't know what you're signing, you're opening yourself up for so much risk, uh, both on the landlord and on the tenant side, as well as buying and selling. So I, th I think that that speaks to not just the complexities and the nuances that can be involved, but just knowing exactly what you're signing and at least being aware of it, I, I think goes a long way. Uh, there's a yeah. couple uh, other comments that came in. Uh, perhaps we, uh, I saw Bev joined in uh, just before we get to that question. Uh, Beverly joined in. Uh, hi, Beverly. Thanks for being here. Hi, Beverly. And I think she put a link to your LinkedIn in, the, uh, in there as well. Uh, so Thank I encourage people to, to reach out to you. We'll, we still got some some more time here, so I'll, I'll do an outro at the end and just uh, tell people where else they can get in touch with you. Uh, but thanks for joining in, Beverly. Uh, Neil, thanks for joining in as well. Uh, great question here. We kind of kickstarted this at the beginning, Dan. Dan, as I almost yeah. said Daniel, Dan. I'll, I'll get that in my, in my head here. How has AI impacted your industries already and how will it in the future? I think this is a very fascinating topic to to jump into. So thanks for the question, Neil. Dan, I'll hand it over to you. What, what's AI? Artificial intelligence. I'm just kidding. We <laughs> could ask AI what AI is. I bet you they'd we have could ask AI. Yeah, we could go into like log into chat GPT right now and ask what, what AI is. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm interested to hearing your take on this too, Chad. So 
in our industry, uh, okay, we wouldn't say like, okay, it, it's impacted everything. It's, a, it's safe to say it's impacted pretty much every industry on on some level, and safe to say it will impact every industry in the future. But you know, when it comes to AI, there's there's two there's two schools of thought. You know, one of them is is uh, and I, I just started a new LinkedIn group about lawyers and AI to to address this and deal and talk about the applications. The first is you know the doom and gloom scenario, the whole Skynet, Terminator, robot mm -hmm. overlords, you know, taking away first taking away our livelihood and then taking away our turning us into slaves and all that. And the second one is you know the more optimistic, excited mindset about what it could do for us to help us and 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 make our lives better easier more fulfilling and i'm very much of that mindset and and i believe that ai could have a lot of great applications for lawyers right now in my experience it's not impacting my profession too much because if you use it to try to do work draft documents you know answer questions and everything it's not there yet it makes it wakes like I've experimented with it. It kind of makes weird mistakes and misses points that we want to be making, not because like it, the machines are imperfect, but because we, for, through experience, know what kind of documents we want to draft and then how to emphasize that. So I think it will get there. And when that's the case, it's going to help us a lot, kind of streamline things. Lawyers definitely still need to review these documents and give advice on them. But in the future, I think it's going to help us generate that stuff. And, but, you know, day to day, I do like to use AI in different ways to help streamline things. Like I use it to help proofread things. I use it to help brainstorm ideas and everything. And I don't rely on it entirely, but it's kind of like a supercharged assistant or friend that I could bounce ideas off of and, and use it to, to help with that stuff. Um, I, so I don't think it's going to replace any sort of lawyers in the future, but I think it's going to kind of streamline our jobs and, and transform our profession in certain ways um, to sh uh, shift our uses from from one thing where tasks become menial to to more of the advisory role. Well said. And I, I say this somewhat facetiously, but I use AI mostly to make meme memes. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I use it regularly for that. Uh, it, it, I, I'm I'm 100 with you. I think that 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 Skynet prop proposition on you see that uh, Boston. Uh, what's that Boston? Boston company, Dynamics. Boston Dynamics. You see yeah. those robots and how how crazy they are, and then you start thinking, well, if AI can be uploaded to that so that they're programmable. And then somebody gets a hold of that technology and all of a sudden they have this robot that can be manipulated by technology. That's not far off from thinking Skynet's around the corner. I, that I, happened. It, it, yeah. Two uh, weeks ago, like ChatGPT was put into a Boston Dynamics robot. And what happened? Well, they're still seeing like what it's going to do, but all the headlines were like, okay, what could possibly go wrong here? Right? Like, you know, a super AI algorithm pointing into like a, a super self-thinking robot. Like, is this thing going to start strangling people in their sleep? We don't know, but yeah, you're, you're right to, to flag that one. Yeah. That, that, that is actually a scary thought. And every time I get those thoughts in my mind, I, I go back to 
I think it was in the 1800s when Ned Luddites the, and the movement, not, not necessarily Ned himself, because I think he was largely fictitious, but when the Luddite movement came and they had all these new machineries that were coming up and the Luddite movement destroyed all the machines because they thought they're going to take over the world and steal jobs. And that's what the term Luddite just came from that as people that are afraid of technology. And I like to think that a lot of people have that same sentiment now the technology is is vastly different but at the time whether that was in the 1800s or whenever it was that that new technology of these new machines that were coming up probably looked very scary to a lot of people there as well so i i try reminding myself that yes technology is always evolving and and i don't think we can stop it at this point i think even if north america pauses this ai development then china is going to just advance that much further as we take a, a pause so i i don't think there's any stopping it i don't know where it goes it, like i love love it for making memes and <laughs> like i that, that's my, probably my favorite part of it right now i if i were to, to guess i would i would think that it's going to replace a lot of that menial or repetitive work uh and that could be mm -hmm. coming up with a property description or that can be uh doing work that could be automated already where I don't see it replacing, and I could be way off on this, I don't see it replacing the work that is that is critical. And that's you being a lawyer. I wouldn't trust mm -hmm. AI developing a, a contract for me and then just using that without having a lawyer look over it. Like that to me, it just, I, I would need to have a lawyer look over it before I'd comfortably sign it. I, I would want to have a doctor review, review a chart or something before I say, okay, well, the AI said that this is the problem. I'm going to take it. On the brokerage side, I, I, I don't know if I would want to, as a buyer or a seller myself, I don't know if I would want to just have that entire process automated where there's nobody involved in that transaction and helping somebody work through that process because it can be, that can be a long process and there's a lot of steps involved. So I think it, mm -hmm. I think it will automate a lot of those tedious work if that's a good way of describing it or a poor way of describing it uh but there's still going to be these very important roles that i think it supplements but i just i don't see it replacing yet but when you hear about a robot being programmed with chat gpt uh maybe that robot <laughs> can go and open the door and and say this is a this is a great property you should you should lease it before someone else does <laughs> maybe they can be programmed with all, with all the uh the technique the pressure techniques that some brokers employ yeah like remember uh in RoboCop, the original, I don't know, 1986 or something, but it was, I think there was one part where he was walking through a house and it was this kind of robot on these clunky wheels with a screen full of face telling it about the, the, the features of the house or whatever. It, it didn't seem too friendly, but, uh, but yeah, you're right. And I think, you know, in your industry, one thing I've heard about a lot is that AI will be used to kind of analyze data sets mm -hmm. as well, like to determine like, um, um, what what spaces will go for how how much it will cost what what the average square footage is and uh, stuff like this by plugging them into algorithms but what phrase i hear a lot is yeah when it comes to lawyers it ai will not replace lawyers but lawyers um who don't use ai will be replaced by lawyers who do right so it, it's yeah, and I think it could be for, for pretty much every industry in that it, it's an important thing. And the Luddites are always, always a great example. Um, Professor Scott Galloway, who I'm a big fan of, wrote a paper yes. on that recently called Luddites, which was, which was great. And 
you know, another example that people often give is, is Microsoft Excel, right? When, when that was introduced in the 80s, it gave accountants pause because what Excel did was they're pretty much their entire jobs when, when it mm -hmm. came out. Right before they were looking at slide rules and calculators, making spreadsheets by hand, determining, and then even back then, like 30 years ago, they could do all that with just like clicking a mouse and get the calculation instantly, like plug a couple numbers into a screen and do that. They were freaking out. But the, you know, the accounted profession has grown exponentially since that time because of the use of that kind of software. Right. So I think AI could very well be kind of the next step in that, in that it's going to probably disrupt pretty much a lot of industries in the short term, but then open up a lot of new opportunities. And I think if people should be viewing AI in that way, and if they don't, and they just want to sit back with their doom and gloom scenarios, well, you know, they, they could do that too. But, you know, I, I'm a firm believer that AI will create opportunity and transform a lot of professions. I love that line. Uh, lawyers that don't use AI will be replaced by lawyers that do use AI, as opposed to the industry being replaced by AI. I, I think that's that's a great way of describing every industry, actually, even beyond law and brokerage. So I, I love that point. Mm -hmm. What what are you using, uh, if anything, beyond ChatGPT, or is that the main one that you're using right now? So ChatGPT is uh, the main one. Uh, there's one called Jasper that you hear a lot about that I've been playing with a lot recently. So Jasper is really good. You could create your memes with it. Uh, <laughs> maybe not the best meme creator, but it, it's great for creating content. Uh, so if you'd like to create, I, I like to write a lot, right? So I also don't like using AI for writing. I don't like the I don't like the style. I don't like the way it emphasizes things. It becomes wooden, but um, Jasper is really good if you want to kind of promote your writing on social media or whatever. It could help you come up with social media posts. It can help you kind of come up with titles and first paragraphs for blog posts that you want to write. Um, and it could help you if you want to write an entire blog post, you can with it. Like I said, I don't recommend it, but some people like to do it and then kind of tinker with the content to make it that way. So, I mean, that that's a great tool and uh, and it's a lot of fun to use. Um, so th there's a lot of great ones for 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 that. So I like Jasper. I like ChatGPT. Uh, there's a couple that help with scheduling and whatnot. And none of those I'm fully reliant on yet, but. I always encourage people to subscribe to AI newsletters and keep an eye on the newest ones that are going to be out there and, you know, play with them, tinker with them and see how, how well you want to use them. Right. If you probably can't envision creating a meme without what do you use journey, what's it called? Mid -journey. Uh, journey. Yeah. journey. Right. That is cool. That like <laughs> mid journey is, is like, I don't have a lot of application for it and what I do, but, Think of that the is memes. A very cool software. Think, think, think <laughs> of the it's so crazy, and it's on version five right now. And I've I've been on it since version one, and the quantum leap uh, that that software is capable of doing with a very simple command in thirty seconds yeah. makes me wonder how graphic designers don't see massive disruption in their business. I think that that will be one industry that does. I'm curious to get your thoughts on this one because you've you've gone, you've got your undergrad, you went to, you got your uh, JD, you're, you've been through a lot of school and I'm guessing you've put a lot of time and a lot of effort into getting that. How do you see chat GPT or other AIs or whatever the future iteration looks like 
on creating a very it has the potential to create a very quick shortcut for a student to uh, have this to use AI to work around a lot of these assignments. Do you see that being a force uh, in future academic academia? Yeah. Well, look, let, let me put it this way. I have friends who are university professors and two of them have told me over the past couple of months, they've told all students no more essays until we know like what, what this can mm. do and everything. Our courses are just going to be exam driven from now mm. on. You're not going to write any more essays. You're just going to do exams. There have been cases of like high school students in the U.S. Uh, where teachers tell people because of chat GPT, you're going to write all papers by hand. I'm not going to have any more word processing. Like any, And Stuart was one student in the U.S. designed this 3D printer where he could uh, put his work into ChatGPT and then use it to write out, write it out in handwriting. The work right? that people will do to avoid doing other work is astonishing. Yeah, exactly. It seemed like it'd probably be easier to just write an essay, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, just to write the essay by hand. So so there is that. Um, there's talk about software that could be used to decipher what was written by AI and, and, and what wasn't. Um, so, you know, I, I think it does have, have big potential for that. Like academic papers is is one thing that it could have broad implications are, but I believe that people who are passionate about what they do in that kind of academia and not just there to get the grades will spend more time researching, writing. They may use AI to help them with that. But, you know, I, I think that especially at the university level, they will care more about creating their own content in that way. But in terms of like disrupting it, then yeah, I like, I do see it. It could, you, you could tell it like write an essay on this and it will spit it out in literally seconds. Like th that is something. So I think like academia is going to change in interesting ways. And I'm sure a lot of professors are putting their heads together to see like adjusting and, and changing teaching methods, you know, in the future. I wonder how many teachers have used AI to generate the questions to ask only for a student to use AI to answer the same question. Yeah, just this feedback <laughs> loop of AI. Uh, just I, I don't know why everyone's even needed at this point. Like we're doing all the work here. I, I, yeah, I think it's going to be absolutely fascinating seeing this develop. And I, I would much rather be on the forefront of this as opposed to catching this on the back end and, and, and the world passing you by, because I think this technology is just, is going to, it's, it's here to stay. I don't see any way that this doesn't just keep, keep growing. So I I'm with you. I think that staying on top of this and incorporating it into the business as opposed to being afraid of it is, is the smart way to go on that. Uh, yeah. Well, Perhaps that's a good time to wrap up because we're just near the top of the hour here. And I feel like I could talk to you uh, about all sorts of things. So I, we might have to do a part two on this uh, uh, down the road in, in the fall. Uh, but I really do appreciate your your time on this. And thanks for, for people that joined in live. Uh, so we got your LinkedIn and your website uh, to your law firm in the description. Uh, you write an awesome article on Renex, which I, I'm a big fan of as well. I think it's a great resource for the industry. Uh, so we can include uh, a link to your to your articles on there as well, because uh, those are, are very well done. I encourage people to, uh, to read them. Uh, any other way for people to get in touch with you or are those three be the best? 
Those are, those are the best. Uh, you know, my yeah, my website has all the contact details. I'm I'm on LinkedIn all the time. So if anyone wants to message me directly through LinkedIn, that's perfectly fine too. And uh, and yeah, I don't think you'll have trouble finding me if you want. I'm also on Twitter, not as much, but you could probably you can message me there. But I tend to get uh, LinkedIn messages quicker than than Twitter messages. So yeah, anyone, any questions, anything to discuss you know where to find me. Awesome. Well, I really do appreciate your time. Wyatt cued my favorite uh, saying, I'm, I've got to be the only YouTuber that actually wraps up a video this way, where I say, give us thumbs up if you liked it, or give a thumbs down if you didn't. I'm not, I'm not imagining that many people <laughs> ask for a thumbs down, but I like feedback of any kind. So uh, if you didn't like this, give me a thumbs down, or leave me a comment why you didn't, uh, or give me a thumbs up and let you know, uh, let me know why you, why you liked it. I definitely liked it. Uh, Daniel, if this was your YouTube channel, I would give you a big thumbs up and really do want to thank you again for, uh, for taking the time to, to share that. That was, that was awesome. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. It was great. Thank you for having me, Chad. Appreciate that. Okay. Well, we'll be in touch. Uh, look forward to uh, the next conversation as well. For sure. If you're ever in Toronto, give me a call. I will. Okay. Thanks, Daniel. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Well, I hope you got some value from that episode. I always enjoy getting to speak with these guests. Again, if you got any value from this, please leave a review on our Apple or Spotify page and look to catch you in the next episode. Thanks.